Securely Bible. How are we doing? Okay, well, all right. Well, something to pray about. Um, Brother Mark, we were uh, wondering what we should pray about. Apparently, nobody wants to uh, talk about how they're doing. Um, so we need to pray about that. Um, Happy New Year, y'all. Um, got some great news and a big answer to prayer uh, to share with you this morning. Uh, most of you will remember that back on December the 4th, I told you that we needed uh, roughly $30,000 to uh, make budget for 2011. That's about 18000 of December uh, December's giving and about 13000 of we were in the hole at that point. And I'm pleased to report to you that um, after we asked the, you know, asked the Lord about this and and prayed about it and uh, and sought his answer on uh, how we should resolve that situation. Actually, far more than $30,000 came in. And um, in fact, we not only had sufficient giving to meet our budget, we actually exceeded our budget uh, by almost $1,400. And uh, and then on top of that, we, we, had, exp- we had spending of greater than that uh, by about $100. So we actually finished the year in the red, giving versus expenses ninety nine dollars and seventy some cents, but <laughs> but um, but that is a tremendous tremendous answer to prayer. Um, you know, um, I didn't get up here and beat the drum on this every week. I I uh, presented the need to y'all and to the Lord and prayed about it, and I know that many of you prayed about it and thought about how you could help us to solve that. And so I want to just pray and thank God uh, for his great provision for us as a church and for allowing us uh, the tremendous privilege of serving him and honoring him with our wealth. So uh, let's pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, you are the God who provides uh, not only what we need, but more than we need, Uh, not only our salvation, but also blessing that you pour out to us. And Father, uh, I'm very excited this morning about how our budget wrapped up for the end of 2011. Uh, it enabled us to um, uh, to wrap up in good shape without uh, without being uh, in debt or without being um, unable to continue doing some of the ministries that we have been doing to to serve you and to honor you. And Father, we know that it's through your provision that that need was met. And Father, we uh, look forward to 2012 and the opportunities that it will bring. And Father, we pray that, again, uh, as you always are faithful to do, that you would deliver us uh, once more, Uh, not just in terms of our giving, but in terms of our ministry. We lay the year before you, Father, uh, trusting that, uh, that to our efforts you will add your grace and your provision and your Holy Spirit and your mercy to transform our efforts into uh, God-honoring, uh, Christ-glorifying mission uh, that meets the needs of the community and of the people who are here assembled to worship you. And Father, we pray that your word, uh, as we study it, would penetrate our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so for the next three weeks here, we're going to be looking at one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, 
They're called the minor prophets, not because they're unimportant, but because they're short in comparison uh, to the major prophets. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, and Daniel. They wrote long books. Uh, the minor prophets wrote short books. Habakkuk wrote three chapters, and we're going to spend uh, three weeks on his three chapters. And uh, you may have to use the table of contents in the front of your Bible to find where Habakkuk is. If it helps you, he is between uh, Nahum and Zephaniah. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> But toward the end of your Old Testament, uh, just a few little pages, I doubt very many of you have done much study in the book of Habakkuk, but I'm hoping to correct that deficiency for you, uh, and, because I think this little book has a lot to say to us about some very big questions that may be on your mind. And as you make your way there, let me ask you a question. Do you ever get sick and tired of the way that the world is? Do you ever get sick and tired of the way that the world is? Does it ever really bother you that the immoral, the greedy, and the wicked seem to be doing pretty well, all things considered? And that the righteous and the godly, the people who fear the Lord and keep His commandments, don't have a lot of payoff in this life many times? Does that ever bug you? Does that ever seem unjust? You ever wonder why God seems to let the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? Does it seem completely unjust that people who ignore God and live their life however they choose seem to be doing well while you get beaten down? If any of those questions ring a bell in your heart, then you are going to love the book of Habakkuk because that is what Habakkuk is written to answer. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to look at Habakkuk's complaint and the Lord's answer. Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. As we begin here, there are some things you need to know. And first, let me fill you in briefly on where Habakkuk fits in Old Testament history. I'll just back up a little bit. Uh, King David ruled about 1000 BC until about 960 or so. And his son Solomon took over and reigned until about 920 BC. And after Solomon, the nation split into a northern kingdom called Israel with a capital at Samaria and a southern kingdom called Judah with a capital at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the temple was located. Uh, the majority of the Levites and the priests went with the southern kingdom, and also in the southern kingdom was the tribe of Judah. The, the, the major portion of that nation was the tribe of Judah, as well as the tribe of Benjamin, one of the smaller tribes. 
And the northern ten tribes were up in Israel, and they were pretty much an idolatrous group of people. And they were carted off into slavery and into exile by the uh, Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. God allowed them to persist for uh, a little over uh, 150 years or so after, after Solomon. They never had a good king. They were always idolatrous. Uh, they were the more prosperous, more wealthy section of the country, but they got carted off into exile in 722. The southern kingdom uh, was a little more righteous, uh, a little more devoted to the Lord, and they lasted until 586 B.C., and they were conquered and exiled by the Babylonians. And the book of Habakkuk is written after 722, when the northern kingdom of Israel has been conquered, and before Judah's fall in 586, when Assyria's power is going down, and the power of Babylon, the Chaldean people, is starting to rise. And it's after also, I believe, the last of the good kings, Josiah, he dies in 609, uh, and but it's written before Babylon finally overthrows Assyria, I think, in 605 because of the events that we uh, see predicted, but that haven't yet happened. So it's somewhere in, I think, about a four-year period between the death of good King Josiah and the, uh, the, the final overthrow of the Assyrians by the Babylonians in 605. Somewhere around 25, uh, 20 to 25 years before the, the nation of Judah actually falls to the Babylonians. And something else you need to know about the prophets generally when you read them. And that is that a prophet's job, normally speaking, was to stand before the people on behalf of God and to call the people to account uh, for their lack of obedience to the covenant that God had made with them at Sinai. Uh, under the, the covenant that God had made at Sinai, God promised to bless the people if they obeyed him and to punish them if they rebelled. But Habakkuk is a unique book. Because alone of all the prophets, Habakkuk calls God to account for his perception that God has not lived up to his end of the covenant. And specifically, the fact that God has not punished people for their disobedience to the covenant that God had made. And, and instead of proclaiming God's judgment on a rebellious people, which is what the, the normal run of prophets did. They spoke on behalf of God to say, if you don't turn back from your sin and obey God, you're going to be punished, and this is how this is going to happen. What Habakkuk is doing is actually pleading for God to bring judgment on his people, which is an unusual thing. Uh, and in a way... Uh, Habakkuk is a lot like Job because uh, only a little bit in reverse because Job's question that he spends 42 chapters seeking an answer to is why do bad things happen to good people? Habakkuk's question is the opposite. It's why do good things happen to bad people? And God, your people are wicked and you're not doing anything about it. And you said you would. And you're not holding up 
to being to to what you said you were going to do you're not acting like a holy god you're not acting like a just god how can you let good things happen to bad people and the interesting thing is is that habakkuk the the bad people that habakkuk has in mind are not some people like far off somewhere like you know new york city or hollywood or washington or you know it's the bad people who live around him his friends his neighbors members of his own family that he is calling God to judge and to punish in accordance with the covenant. And Habakkuk complains to God and says, hey, what are you doing? How come you're not doing anything about this? Don't you see all this going on around me? Don't you see all the evil that's being done? And you're not judging. You're not doing anything about it. And God, I'm sick and tired of putting up with all these people that seem to be doing really well, even though they're wicked, even though they're immoral, even though they're violent, even though they're greedy. You're not doing anything about it. And in fact, his complaint begins with two questions, which is, why doesn't God help? That's verse 2. Second, second line in verse 2, why don't you listen? You don't help and you don't hear. I cry out to you, and you're not helping me, and you're not hearing when I cry. And, and I think those are good questions, because when evil is running rampant, as it seems to be in our day, it can seem like God either isn't listening or doesn't care. And look at what the evil they're doing. According to verse 2, Habakkuk says the nation is full of violence. In fact, as you read the book of Habakkuk, that word violence is sprinkled throughout the book as one of the major sins of the people. And we don't know all the details, but perhaps his nation was like ours. Did you know this? I didn't know this. But ab about 5 million violent crimes are committed in this country every year. Things like rape, assault, robbery, murder. Five million times every year in this country. And every year, the best-selling video games are often the most violent. The best money-making movies and TV shows are often the ones that are the goriest the ones that are most graphic in their depiction of death and destruction. Even the political rhetoric we use against each other very often uses violent imagery, and we don't even think about it. I mean, after all, what do we call this? This is 2012, this is the election season, but it's also the beginning of the political what? Campaigns. Campaign is a military word first to going to war we talk about targeting states and putting so-and-so in the crosshairs and all these kinds of things right and we don't even think about that anymore and attack ads and whatever else right and it's and it's and it's just part of our culture so it just doesn't even register that we, that we talk casually, in a sense, about doing rhetorical and sometimes even physical violence against one another. 
Habakkuk sees a love of violence in his culture, and he cries out to God to rectify it. Please, God, bring an end to all this evil. In verse 3, he cries out, why, cries out wondering why God makes him continually look on people and their wickedness and why God sits and doesn't do anything about it. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? In other words, God, you seem to be sitting on your hands up there. Don't you see all this stuff? And I'm a, I'm a sinful man, but I'm more righteous than these people, and I'm in the midst of it, and I'm tired of it. Don't you see? Can't you bring justice? Everybody's fighting and destroying one another. Sin is running rampant, and nothing is happening to put a stop to it. Doesn't that bother you, God? But the worst of it is what Habakkuk complains about in verse 4. He says the law is paralyzed. And when he talks about the law there, he means the divine law, the law that God gave at Sinai in his covenant. Justice never goes forth. Justice isn't being done, whether it's from a cosmic perspective or even just local day-to-day -day life. Justice is not happening. Evil men have free reign to continue their corruption, and they're utilizing their freedom not just to pursue wickedness, but to suppress righteous people from doing anything about it. There are wicked men in power, and justice is being perverted until only injustice is being done. And bottom line, his complaint is, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? Why aren't you doing anything about it? You say that you're a just and holy God, but you're allowing all this. When are you going to step in and do something? Well, what do you think God is going to say to that? This is what he says. God gives his answer starting at verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. You know, one of the things I find the most interesting and compelling about the God of the Bible, the God who is really there, is his attitude toward those who have the audacity to question him. You know, a lot of times, I don't know why this is, but a lot of times there's a perception that uh, that the God of the Bible is kind of a take-it-or-leave-it kind of a God. Like, you either do it my way and you trust me regardless, 
but I'm not going to explain myself to you. But in fact, what you see over and over, not just in the prophets, but in the Psalms and all through the Bible, is that God is a God who is big enough to handle questions being thrown his way uh, by the creature to the creator. And he isn't a, a, a God who feels threatened by that, but he's a God who gives answers. And what God does when we're struggling is he gives us a little more revelation of himself and who he is and what he is like. And that's what he does with his answer to Habakkuk's question. And remember, his question basically boils down to, God, why aren't you doing anything about all this? And God says, essentially, I am doing something. Let me explain to you what I'm doing. He says, look here, look among the nations and see. Look, Habakkuk, you and your people are too nearsighted, in other words. You're too focused on yourselves and your own circumstances, and you need to lift up your eyes and look out to the horizon and look out to the nations around you because I am going to use those nations around you to achieve the goal that you have of purifying and cleansing the nation from sin. Uh, everybody in the nation of, of Judah there is rejoicing in the fact that Assyria's power is declining because they're getting free of that, of that uh, oppressive people that have uh, not necessarily reigned over them, but have nevertheless oppressed them and hemmed them in and made life difficult for them. And everybody's saying, hey, the Assyrians are getting, or they're, they're on their way out. That's good. And they're using the freedom that God has provided from the Assyrians to not to glorify him and give him honor, but to pursue sin and evil. All right. Apparently, God's not going to do anything about what we've been up to. But God says, look out on the international scene because I'm doing something that no one could predict. I'm doing something surprising. And what I'm doing that's surprising is not that the fact that I'm going to bring judgment, but about how it's going to happen. See, I think one of the things that, that, that you need to know about God is that he doesn't always operate the way that we think that he should. And sometimes the way that he chooses to bring about a result that we want is totally different than the pathway we would choose right? I think, you know, we've all joked around before about praying to God for patience, right? How does God do that? Well, very often the way that he chooses to do that is by putting you in circumstances where you have to, to be patient, where something that perhaps you really want doesn't come right away. Or maybe you have children Just being real with y'all, <laughs> okay? Or, um, you know, there's circumstances that come about, right? God doesn't just say, well, okay, I'll just declare that you're going to be patient and you'll, your character will be transformed. No, your character usually is transformed through adversity. And... 
same thing is true of churches and of nations and of families that God chooses to bring about change generally through adversity, through allowing evil to triumph for a while until he works through it to bring about change that is significant. And he's, God says essentially to Habakkuk, I'm going to bring about the very thing that you're praying about, an end to evil, an end to idolatry, an end to violence, an end to rebellion against me. I'm going to bring it about through the Babylonians. The what? The Babylonians. Because God's correction and discipline have not been asleep, and, and justice is not dead, even if it seems like it for the moment. And what makes this really unbelievable is the fact that the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, were even more wicked than Judah. In fact, in comparison to the people of Judah, this is like people with a few flecks of dirt on their clothes versus someone who mud wrestles for a living. These are some of the most wicked, nasty, violent people the world had ever seen. These are people who specialized in warfare. History records that the Babylonians were just about unequaled, except for maybe by the Assyrians, in their love for violence. Captured soldiers would be taken and tortured to death. There was no G Geneva Convention back then. If you were uh, a member of the royal family of a captured nation, very often you were immediately, if you were a man, taken and made a eunuch. Probably what happened to Daniel and his friends on day one of their Babylonian captivity. Women and children would be raped and then enslaved. Captives were made to march all the way back to the city of Babylon through the streets in public humiliation as spoils of war. King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, when Babylon finally took the city in 586, they went to the palace, they captured the king, they captured all of his sons, they slaughtered all of the king's sons in front of him. And then with that as the last image that he sees, they take a sword and put out his eyes and led him back in chains to Babylon. These are violent, nasty, nasty people. And in fact, God calls them a bitter and hasty people, or your translation may read a ruthless and impetuous people. Were the people of Judah greedy and destructive? Absolutely. But the Babylonians were greedy not just to possess their neighbors' property and people's goods, they wanted to rule the entire world, and they did. They took over the entire known world of that day, and they wanted to take everything of value Anything that wasn't red hot or nailed down, they would grab. Their cavalry was renowned 
for the speed that they moved and the ferocity with which their armies conquered. That's why they're compared here in the text. God calls them leopards, wolves, and eagles. They are like predators. And they go fast. They take so many captives. They enslaved so many people. It was like the sand on the beach, how many people they enslaved. And if you think your fortress is strong, well, the Babylonians knew. They were smart people. They knew how to build up siege ramps and siege engines, and they could knock down the strongest, biggest wall, invade the biggest city of the day, and take it. No matter how strong, no matter how tough you were, eventually your kingdom was going to fall because the Babylonians were coming. And in fact, many, many times when the Babylonian army showed up, people just voluntarily surrendered because they could generally get better terms before the battle than after. And when they had conquered, it was like the passing of a huge storm where there was just wreckage left behind. And destruction was left in their wake, and they just kind of moved on to the next conquest with only ruins left to indicate that your civilization and city had ever even been there. And the Babylonians did all this because of the god that they worshipped. They worshipped a god named Marduk. And he was the warrior god who in the beginning, if you read the Enuma Elish, which is their kind of founding myth, he's the god who slays his own mother and who stretches out her carcass and spreads her blood all over the universe to create the world. And their belief was that the way to create order and peace and tranquility in the world was through slaughter. And when every one of our enemies is dead, then we will have made the world according to our liking, just like Marduk. People eventually become whatever they worship, and the Babylonians worshiped the most, one of the most violent gods, and they became very much like him. And God says that they worship their own strength, their own, their own might in bringing other nations under their rule. And God says, I'm going to use the Babylonians. These people who make everybody in Judah look like Sunday school teachers, I'm going to use them to purify the nation. Now let me ask you, what do you think of God's response Habakkuk here in this first chapter is it raise your hand if you find this easy to understand why God would say that I got to confess to you it's a little beyond my ability to comprehend you're going to punish wicked people with even more wicked people you're going to create holiness out of wicked people with incredible wickedness? Really? We'll find out next week that this is beyond Habakkuk's comprehension too because he's going to say to God next week as we'll see, what? 
<laughs> You're going to do what? <laughs> and then God is going to give another answer, and we're going to look at that. Uh, so you'll have to show up next week to see what Habakkuk says to God and how God answers him again. How can God allow people who deserve discipline for their idolatrous ways to be punished by the really idolatrous? By the people who are fully committed to idolatry, not people who just dabble in it from time to time, but people who are full-on idolaters. How can you allow that, God? And Habakkuk thinks, and some, some of you may think, uh, God's solution raises just as many problems as it solves. And to get the answer to that, you're going to have to come back next week. But uh, even as we have more questions, there's some things here that I think are important that we learn from this passage, and I want to point them out to you. Number one, God reveals himself to be just. And maybe we still have questions about how his justice works, but God reveals himself to be just in this passage. His patience does have a very definite limit, and when it's reached, even his own people don't escape judgment. The scripture says elsewhere, God is not mocked, a man reaps what he sows. And even if you are part of God's chosen people, as the, as the people of Judah were, Eventually, God's grace and patience is at a limit, and he says, judgment will fall. And it's going to fall on the nation of Judah through the Babylonians. Why? Because God is just. By the way, the Babylonians are going to get theirs also. God is just. Secondly, God is amazing. God is amazing. He is surprising. You know, a lot of times people think, well, God, you know, in fact, Freud even said this if you read him, which I would not recommend, but if you do, he would say that God doesn't really exist except as a projection of our own desires and as kind of a superhuman version of ourselves. The God of the Bible, the God who is really there, is not at all like we would expect. It's one of the reasons I am inclined to think he is the real God. One of many reasons. But one of the reasons is that the God of the Bible is not what we would expect. He is holy. He is just. And he is amazing. And I, he, God tells the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's timing and his purposes and his plans are beyond our comprehension. Amen? I mean, if, 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 it, if everything happened according to my timing, it would have happened yesterday. Right? But God's timing and plans and purposes are not only beyond our comprehension, but perfect and perfectly suited for achieving his goals and his plans and his purposes. God is amazing, and he is beyond our limited understanding. And that fact ought to lead us to worship him and to give him honor. And last, God is sovereign. As you look at this, what you see is that God reveals himself to be 
the, the God who is moving nations uh, down and up according to his plan and purpose. He's done with Assyria. They fulfilled their role in the wor- world stage, and he is wiping them from the scene. Anybody met any Assyrians lately? If you do meet one, what you'll find out is that many of them are Christians, amazingly enough. But they are not a world power. Why? Because God is sovereign, and he raises up and puts down nations according to his plans and purposes. He is sovereign. And sometimes in this world of ours, it can seem like God isn't involved And we can ask questions like, well, why doesn't God eliminate all the evil from the world right now? Doesn't he see, doesn't he know all this stuff that's going on? How come God doesn't do that? Why doesn't he display his glorious power and his justice completely and fully right now? It's because God is using even evil men to accomplish his purposes. Just like God used Pharaoh God used the Assyrians, God used the Babylonians, God used the Persians, God used the Romans. The Romans were great builders. They built roads that connected all over the world. What did God use them for? To spread the gospel all over the known world on roads built by Roman Roman emperors. God uses even evil men to accomplish his purpose because his purpose is purifying and saving his people. It always is. And God allows evil to persist because he is saving evil people out of an evil generation for his own glory. And he is doing it in a way that neither us nor the prophets could have imagined. And so we are, I think, bound to trust God, even though we don't always understand, even though we don't always see, even though we, what we do see is a world of pain and suffering and death and destruction and warfare. God is working if we have eyes to see. And he will accomplish his plans for us, just like he was working in Habakkuk's day. Because you know what the end of the story is? I'll just jump ahead. One of the big problems in Israel and Judah was that they were idolatrous. They worshipped Yahweh, but alongside that they worshipped Baal, they worshipped Asherah, they uh, bowed down to the gods of, of Moab and of Edom and of Ammon and of Babylon and of Phoenicia. They bowed down to all of them. And also the Lord. You know what happened after the Babylonian captivity? Now they had some other spiritual problems, but idolatry never happened again. Not ever. God eliminated that. He purified and made his people holy to where they worshipped only him. God's purposes and plans are going to be accomplished just like they were in Habakkuk's day, but we need to trust him as to the means that he is using because he is at work and he is surprising in the way that he chooses to use. But one day we will see all of his plan laid out and how all of it was necessary to accomplish his goal of saving and purifying a people for himself.
bring him glory. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we stand before you like Habakkuk with lots of questions about how you are working in the world, but Father, we trust and we believe that you indeed are working, that in spite of all of the evil that we see, uh, not just surrounding us, but in ourselves, Father, that by your Holy Spirit and by your word, you are alive and at work in the world saving and purifying a people for yourself to bring you glory. And Father, we pray that even in the midst of all these things, that we would have eyes to see uh, your greater plan and purpose, still operating, still at work, still achieving the objectives that you have until the day when all of them are accomplished and you fold up the universe like a garment and welcome us into your eternal presence. And Father, we do pray that we would trust you, the God who is amazing and just and sovereign and also loving that you love us, and that our faith would grow sufficient to actually understand the God who is there and who reveals himself to us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.